Welcome to Truth 30 with Joey Dumont, a podcast that debates our society's most politically compelling topics through the lens of slow journalism. Each show is investigated with a focus on narrative as well as discovery. We believe that the complexity of our culture today cannot be crammed into six-minute television segments or snippets and memes on social media, where ideology and entertainment has overtaken the creed of historical reporting. On the program, you'll hear the opinions of subject matter experts to help you separate the signal from the noise. Our collective goal is to better understand one another, not win a battle. After watching, you'll be reminded that a proper debate is not about victory, but that of inquiry, education, and viewpoint diversity. So tune in and talk amongst yourselves. You may even learn a thing or two. Dr. Julia Mason is a board-certified pediatrician and fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics. She's a graduate of the University of Illinois with both her master's in nutritional science as well as her medical degree. She completed residency training in pediatrics at Children's Hospital Los Angeles and currently runs a busy practice in Oregon, where she now deals with an ever-increasing number of gender dysphoric adolescents, many of whom are dealing with neurodevelopmental challenges or psychiatric comorbidities. During our chat, we discussed the alarming statistic that 99% of children who are put on puberty blockers will eventually graduate to cross-sex hormones. Hormones like testosterone or estrogen. And by choosing this treatment, they are now on a lifelong path of medicalization, a path she believes is not understood with regards to the informed consent of minors. She also shared her concerns that puberty blockers are not a harmless pause, quote-unquote, as many of her colleagues believe, and that based on her 25 years of practicing pediatric medicine, she believes that puberty blockers can sterilize children, have adverse effects on bone density, and even prevent penile development in boys, and why she has been very vocal in her descent to the American Academy of Pediatrics for many years now. I was thrilled to have Dr. Mason join me on the program, and although I've interviewed over 20-plus clinicians in my reporting over the past six months, Dr. Mason was the first one brave enough to join me on camera. I hope you learned as much as I did. Well, there's our legal warning, Julia Mason. So thank yes. you for joining me on True 30 this morning. Good morning. Thanks for and you got me. your new microphone since the last time we talked, so I'm going to have this wonderful clarity on numerous right. fronts. Yes. <laughs> so it's cool. So let me first thank you for joining because I'm aware that you're a busy practicing physician and researcher and speaker on the topic of gender dysphoria. And so it's very kind of you to uh, carve out some time for me. So thank you. Um, I would also like to thank you for coming on the show to talk about one of the most controversial topics. I think of our life specifically. It, it has become, even for me, interviewing clinicians and trans people, uh, the vitriol thrown at me has been real. And uh, so I commend you on that. I think you're brave. And I've talked to, at this point, well over 20 clinicians uh, from Australia, the UK, Scandinavia, and then some that have you've referred me to and others, but very, very few have agreed mm -hmm. to come on camera for all the obvious reasons. Um, yeah. it, it proves to be harmful to careers, which is something that I've yet to see in any other topic that I've reported on over the last year. So let me give my listeners a little background on this. There is a physician named Dr. Lisa Littman. It was a former assistant professor at Brown University in the public health and behavioral sciences division. And she coined a term called rapid onset gender dysphoria. And it was in response to and a hypothesis to uh, what she was noticing with teenage girls, specifically 11 to 15 years old, uh, which was also something they noticed in the UK uh, at the, 
the Tavistock Clinic. And the I think that the increase in teenage girls, 11 to 15, identifying as trans or non-binary was up 5,300%, which was the newest piece that I saw from uh, Dr. Stella O'Malley. And here in America, it's up over 1,000%. And you may even have numbers that, that uh, speak to that. But the reason I mention her is that she wrote a study specific to this rapid onset gender dysphoria where she interviewed 235 uh, surveys. And she found that these youths, 82% of which, 41% of them had identified as non-heterosexual prior to the survey. Two-thirds also had been diagnosed with at least one mental disorder or a neurodevelopment disability before they claimed they had gender dysphoria. And none of them actually claim this at the ages of two, three, and four, which was typical of gender dysphoria. So, you know, one might deduce, as she talked about, that these girls were maybe, in fact, not transgendered, but maybe lesbian or struggling with other mental health issues. And this was because this was kind of her thesis as a general uh, analysis. And Brown University got so much vitriol thrown at them from the trans community, trans activist community, that they pulled the study, apologized and then made some cosmetic changes and put it back up. So mm -hmm. that's an example. Uh, Dr. Littman was, in the literature talks about it was a mutual agreement to leave, but you know we kind of know where that comes yeah. from. Um, there was another clinician by the name of Dr. Kenneth Zucker, who I've referenced previously, but he was also a sexologist and psychologist who ran the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Canada, Toronto to be specific, for more than 30 years. And he was dismissed. He was let go of his career and kind of run out of town on a pyre and people were very angry with him. And his crime was actually to suggest that rather than immediately starting children who suffer from gender dysphoria on a transition process, uh, whether that would be puberty blockers across sex hormones or eventual surgery, he said, perhaps we should try to help children feel comfortable in their own bodies. And not that dysphoria itself wasn't a possibility because this young, this man dedicated his life to trans people and was a wonderful human being. And, you know, he was run out of town and fired. And there were over 500 professional clinicians that came to his um, defense. And the good news on that front was that Dr. Fired for Gender Identity Clinic says he feels vindicated after the uh, can, the CAMH apology and the settlement. So mm -hmm. he was liberated and after he went through hell and had death threats and had to move his families. And so I share that not to discourage you <laughs> from talking to me today, but I, I just wanted That's to- That's it, we're done. Yes. <laughs> Get me out I, of here. What if, I'm done. I, I have a, to this? I have a oh family. Oh my God. <laughs> so I, I just wanted my listeners to understand that this, this is how typical this is. And then yeah. the piece too also is that Abigail Schreier wrote a book called Irreversible Damage, which is a bestseller. And Dr. Lisa Lippman was one of the clinicians referenced in that book. And so she actually came to notoriety. And the good news is her career's back in, back in step and she's doing wonderful things, but she did go through some stuff. And I share that because as a former card carrying member of the ACLU, something really surprised me and this shows you kind of the width and breadth of how powerful trans activism is, is that Abigail Sher's book, and this is a quote from the ACLU, is a dangerous polemic with a goal of making people not trans. Chase Strangio, who is the American Civil Liberties Union's deputy director, tweeted, I think 
all the times and ways I was told my transness wasn't real and the daily toll it takes. We have to fight these ideas which are leading to the criminalization of trans life. Stopping the circulation of this book and these ideas is a 100% hill I will die on. I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, it's... holy shit, right? That This is the ACLU. I mean, this is, yeah. you know, Ira Glaster is like rolling. Well, he's not dead. So he's probably just like screaming at the top of his lungs from his uh, apartment in New York City. But I, I just... I'm blown away by this. I know. It's like, so we need to fronts. burn these books. We need to the burn ACLU this book. lawyer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the ACLU, which, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that kind of encompasses, you know, where we are, um, yeah. on this piece. And so that, you know, wow. So I know last we spoke, and this may be a good place to start with your, uh, expert opinions. You went to Anaheim to speak at a conference with this topic in mind. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and what your role was Um, there and what took place? Right. So in mid-October, the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is the largest professional organization for pediatricians, um, doctors who see kids from birth to some say 18, some say 21. Um, Anyway, uh, had their national conference and exhibition. And this is the first time they had it in person since the pandemic. And they had it in Anaheim. It's a huge meeting. There's 10,000 pediatricians at the meeting. And I was recruited to speak, to participate and speak at a rally to be held outside of the meeting. I was not an invited speaker to the meeting. This is something that I'd love to do, but I can't even get the academy to consider my resolutions to the annual leadership forum. But um, a group mainly organized by a group called Our Duty, which is a group of parents who are concerned about their kids, um, they they did what was deemed a silent rally outside of the Anaheim Convention Center. But because the AAP knew there were going to be protests outside, they they asked the convention center to maximize the security. And so they had uh, fences up all just basically at the property line all the way around. And so the demonstration couldn't happen on the steps of the convention center. It had to be down the street in front of hotels, you know, on the way to the convention center, basically on the sidewalks. And, and so um, there were, trans rights protesters who were loudly chanting and playing loud music and had the pink and blue flags. And, you know, we're saying trans rights are human rights and trans women are women and all those sorts of things. And then unfortunately the noisiest participants were some very conservative Christians who had a really good audio setup and a really good preacher man who was able to continually harangue all of us very loudly because he had a microphone yeah. um, with, with hardly without hardly taking a breath, you know? And so it was just literally lake of fire stuff. And wow. so like, and when you are in the lake of fire, you're going to say, Oh, <laughs> I hate this fire. It hurts, but it's too late. You are in the lake of fire. And he said, he's oh, talking geez. about Sodom and Gomorrah and pillars of salt and all that kind of stuff. So, Unfortunately, all of my fellow pediatricians who were just trying to get into the convention center, they tended to sort of hunch their shoulders, tuck their heads, and just book on past everything. 
Um, I'm told by other people that they did get some engagement with pediatricians one-on-one and they did get positive engagement. My experience was not that good. I, I went inside the security line because I was actually a participant in the convention. I had spent my $600 or whatever to go. And uh, the security guy was like very confused because I had the, I had the purple t-shirt on that said first do no harm. And that was the protest t-shirt that all the protesters were wearing. But then I also had the big lanyard that said, Dr. Julia Mason, you know, FAAP. (laughs) And he was like, whoa, whoa, this is a lot. And I'm like, yeah, it's a lot. I'm a pediatrician (laughs) and I need to go in here because this is the meeting I'm attending. This is it. Yeah, This is it. This is where I'm going. And I went in there and I was like hoping to talk to pediatricians, but it really felt like the pediatricians, maybe the ones who aren't in in on this, the ones who aren't up for this, they just didn't go. Like they weren't inspired to attend a meeting in Southern California where there were going to be multiple gender doctors presenting, um, you know, in a favorable light. And they're like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to fly there and spend money on that. But it was in stark contrast to my experience in 2019, which was the last time I was at a, an in-person AAP meeting. Um, in 2019, what? yeah, go ahead. No, what was that contrast? Sorry. Right. So in 2019, I went there. I was trying to strike up conversations. I am terrible at one-on-one politicking, but I attended a seminar that was something like, you know, um, it had a title, very basic, like pediatric medical transition, mm-hmm. you know, and then there were three gender doctors presenting from the East Coast, one from New Orleans, the, the meeting was in New Orleans, and one who has this giant clinic that sees, serves people in four southern states, like like Tennessee and Alabama, and I'm bad at geography, so I'm not going to keep going. Okay. Um, and the room was packed. And the doctors were visibly thrilled because their immediate assumption on seeing the packed room was that we were all there because we wanted to also learn how to be life-saving heroes and administer hormones to transgender children. Um, But I don't think that's what the room was full of because when they opened up for questions and I stood up and asked a fairly skeptical question... Um, It was near the very end. And so everything ended after my question. And I sort of got mobbed by all these pediatricians saying, oh, thank you so much for asking that question. I'm wondering about this too. This doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know what's going on. And so I feel like a lot of the pediatricians in that room were there because they were trying to figure out what what is going on with this? Like, where did this come from? Um, And then, you know, and so I had a conversation. So I was thinking, oh, I'm going to the AP meeting. I don't know if I'm going to be run out by young doctors saying, you know, burn the witch. I mean, deplatform the turf. Or if I was going to be mobbed by, <laughs> you know, middle-aged doctors saying, I'm so glad you're speaking up. But the truth is neither, neither happened. It was just <laughs> depressing. It was really depressing because I think people have sort of sorted themselves, sort of like the whole country sure. seems to be sorting themselves geographically. Yes. Um, I think people are just choosing to not engage with 
you know, with this, if they, if they don't understand it or they don't agree with it. Which, you know, per my preamble, it's a very understandable thing, right? So the four people that were up, the actual experts, were they talking specifically about the four steps of gender affirming care or what did Mm -hmm. that? And if that's the case, can you explain that to our listeners, what that process? Sure. Well, in 2018, the American Academy of Pediatrics put out a statement. It wasn't official guidelines. It wasn't anything about standard of care. Um, it was just a statement. It was written by a young doctor named Jason Rafferty, who was still in training when he wrote it. It was published in October, and he finished his training in July. Um, and it it, uh, it basically said that kids can be transgender and if they are then you there are three things you could do you could do watchful waiting that's what mm-hmm. dr zucker did primarily right. if he had a young kid who you know usually a boy who said oh i think i am actually a girl i think i should right. be a girl his advice was like yeah let's just let's just stick a pin in that <laughs> let's yep. just see how it turns out because the majority of those kids would would um go back to their birth sex as puberty hit them. And the majority of them realized that they were gay and that's why they were like not fitting in with the other boys. Mm -hmm. But so they said there's watchful waiting, uh, but that's terrible and wrong and you shouldn't do it. And there's conversion therapy and that's terrible and wrong and you shouldn't do it. Except that all of the references, because you know, when you write a paper, you make a statement and then there's little, little numbers and then the numbers take you to the references if you go to the references, all of the papers they referenced about how conversion therapy is terrible and wrong were about adult male homosexuals. There's nobody has done evil conversion therapy on trans kids. That that is not a thing. It. I mean, right. Dr. Zucker was practicing in the 80s and 90s, and perhaps some of the things that he recommended all those, you know, 40 years ago, I wouldn't recommend today, but none of it was aversive. You know, it was like, Hey, how about he spends more time with dad and can we get him some male friends who aren't bullies? And, you know, could he try a sport? Right. Not therapy in the sense of trying to convert them. Supportive therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you've been abused or if you have, you know, mental anxiety, those kind of things. And, And didn't this kind of, and there's also two other clinicians that I've read about. They're also poo-pooed, by the way, by the trans activists, like Dr. Richard Green and Ray Blanchard mm-hmm. were mm-hmm. clinicians. And I, one of those two, I think it was Dr. Green who named it autogonophilia specific to... That was actually, that, that was Blanchard. Blanchard. Okay, thank Blanchard. you. So Blanchard came up with that idea. And both of these men dedicated their lives to this as well. Mm-hmm. And 70 to 80% of the children that they studied, and it was you know, a quantitative study over longitudinal data. Multiple studies. Yeah. yeah. That that 70 to 80% of these, and these are boys, mm-hmm. usually proved to, proved to be homosexual after puberty, not necessarily trans. Obviously there's trans people who continue to feel that way mm-hmm. into adulthood, but that was, so those, all the numbers historically have been very similar. They've almost gelled around that 70-ish percent. And then Dr. Zucker's yeah. were the same, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so yeah. The, so, the, Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say it's 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 usually around you know two thirds at least right. um, two thirds to to closer to ninety percent depending on the study. 
And also, you know, the older studies had a looser definition for gender identity disorder. And so that's where the really high numbers came from. But even um, Dr. Zucker, a student of his um, last name, Singh, S-I-N-G-H, they published in 2021 and they went back to the old studies and they sort of retrospectively applied the new, um, more stringent criteria because, mm-hmm. you know, the trans activists have been saying all those old studies are defunct and you can't look at them because it was the DSM-4 and they had a different, you know, definition. And so you, those are, ignore them, you know, <laughs> they don't exist, but they went back because he has the data, he has the charts and they sort of retrospectively weeded out the weaker cases, the ones that would have made the criteria for the gender dysphoria diagnosis. And it was still pushing 70% okay. desisted with puberty. Wow. Okay. Those are, yeah. yeah, that's a staggering number there. Yeah. Yeah. James Cantor has been all over this. He was one of the first sexologists that I discovered when I started looking into this because like Dr. Zucker, like Dr. Blanchard, this is what he does. Like this has his, been his life. And so he was looking at this AAP statement written by young Dr. Rafferty and he sees, you know, conversion therapy is evil and wrong. And he goes and he looks at the references and he's like, wait, I know these references these aren't about kids. This is about adult male homosexuals. This has nothing to do with transgender kids. And so pretty soon after that statement came out, he wrote something and he got it published called fact checking the AAP. And wow. it basically went through. Yeah, like You can Google fact checking the AAP. I will find James <laughs> Cander's paper. I will. And he basically goes through it and he's like, this, this is, this is bull. This is not like these guys are making it up. And Sadly, this is what you encounter over and over again when you get into the scientific literature about pediatric medical transition. Um, you've got people mispurposing political surveys and trying and, and publishing in top tier medical journals with theories that have been harvested. <clears throat> from massive online political surveys. So I'm referencing the 2015 USTS, which was done by a, you know, a, a trans activist group that wanted to influence politicians and, you know, politicians and legislation. And so they recruited online, they set up laptops at trans community centers, they went to gender clinics, you know, they recruited their people. And then they had them take this very long survey and they got like 15,000 responses, but it's like so non um, representative. Um, It skews more college educated. It skews. Oh, sorry. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. Let's see. Okay. So it's a quick cut. Here we'll go. It's excuse non-representative. Excuse more college educated. Excuse much more female than the than the usual transgender population. And a remarkable number of people were exactly 18 years old on the day they filled out the survey. Um, all signs of, you know, just a random online survey and it's not reliable data. And the point was to influence politicians, not doctors. And yet Jack Turbin, who's another 
um, young doctor who achieved amazing things very, very early in his career, um, has published multiple times, um, basically data mining this massive survey um, to say that conversion therapy increases suicidal ideation. And when you actually look at the questions he was using, that it's it's like, has anybody ever tried to talk you out of being trans? And if you said yes, then you were a person who underwent conversion therapy. Like okay. that was the definition of conversion therapy. that person therapy. could be your parents. It could be a, a psychologist that you talked to about a previous, you know, just right. you have some type of covariate going on in your life, right? Where you could right. Be, Okay, so that's, and there's that's, no way to determine causality from a survey that's a single point in time. Like right. he's just making all of these massive assumptions, you know. Like if you if you find out that people who got these medications had better mental health, is that because the people with poor mental health, the doctors didn't want to give them the medications? Yeah, possibly. But he's saying, oh, the fact that the people who got the medications have better mental health. That means the medications made them healthier. And it's like, no, it could be that the people with really poor mental health, the doctors in the gender clinics were like, yeah, let's hold off before we put you on these powerful mood altering substances. It's the old ad hoc post ergo hoc propter hoc kind of problem. Yeah. So I, I think that that is a, it's a great segue. Let me read. So you wrote reconsidering informed consent for trans mm-hmm. identity adolescents and young adults. And and in your published paper, it says, in less than a decade, the Western world has witnessed an unprecedented rise in the number of children and adolescents seeking gender transition. Despite mm-hmm. the precedent of years of gender-affirming care, the social, medical, and surgical interventions are still based on a very low-quality evidence. The process is limited by erroneous professional assumptions, poor quality of the initial evaluations, and inaccurate and incomplete information shared with patients and their parents. So you're not mincing words, Doc. I mean, these are, <laughs> these are pretty, pretty strong. And then part of it is that the gender identity variations were thought to be extremely rare a generation ago. While the incidents in youth have not been officially estimated, in adults, it was two out of 14 per, 10, per 100,000 by the American Psychiatric Association. This was in mm-hmm. 2013. However, around 2006, the incidents became um, two to 9% of the U.S. high school students identify as transgender, while in college, three to 5%. So these are staggering. This is a John Hopkins American College Health Association. These are yeah. staggering numbers. I've read a They're thousand huge. percent increase in the United States. And the, the funny thing you mentioned about that trans survey, I got that sent to me yesterday by people who I've, uh, it's a, it's a focus group of pro- progressives that I talk to. And mm-hmm. I look up to these people. They're very smart and I like them very much. Uh, we disagree <laughs> on this. And so we, we're, we're pretty vocal in our debate. But that survey itself was shared, and then they shared the new 2022 survey, which is still, <laughs> hi, puppy. And it was still in the, uh, I could actually sign up, and, and so it's still live. So it's not, the data is not in yet. But I think that's one of those things where you've been pushing back on this now for a couple of years. And when you got to this conference in Hanheim, did you actually mm-hmm. speak to a crowd, or did you? I, I did speak to a crowd. We were going to have, um, we're going to have the speeches outside, but as soon as we tried to speak, um, the, the trans rights activists that I mentioned 
basically came up and and stuck their signs in the face of the person that was speaking. And it was really, it was particularly awful because the woman that was speaking is a woman who is an immigrant from, I don't know, a a Spanish-speaking immigrant to Los Angeles. And her daughter declared a trans identity. And this mom did not like throw her out in a transphobic fit of rage, but truly just did not understand what was going on. And she misgendered her child in the presence of school authorities. And the kid ended up in foster care. So the kid was put, her daughter was put into foster care in Los Angeles And then while in foster care, started taking testosterone and then under the influence of testosterone, um, she became more agitated, more depressed, and she committed suicide by jumping in front of a train. Um, this is, this is a thing. This is a thing. So it's almost like with, with transgender, uh, especially with the female to male, you traditionally adolescent females have many more suicide attempts than adolescent males, Mm -hmm. but they don't, they don't go through with it. Like they swallow pills. They, they, they do various things, but they are rescued from, from the gesture. Whereas adolescent boys, don't do this nearly as much, but they die more often mm-hmm. because adolescent boys tend to select effective methods right. of suicide. And so it's almost like a perfect, perfect storm when you have a depressed, um, unwell teenage girl, and then you put her on testosterone. So this woman is literally like standing on a wooden crate with a little microphone trying to tell the story of her daughter being taken from her and then dying when in foster care and these activists are yelling and sticking their signs right in her face and it was just like oh oh wow i this is really something so um can we back up a the second organizer, and, yeah and- I've read this in other literature that you can, and this is rare, but you can lose custody yeah. of your child. Yes. For the you can. sole Especially purpose of saying misgendering. Yes. yes. What happens in, ta- in Canada, there was a man who I, yes. I reported on who lost his son based on this. Mm-hmm. And his, him and his wife were divorced, but he actually got thrown yeah. in jail as well. So yeah. what does that, what does that look like? I mean, how, well, how is the, yeah, I have what, pers- how does that happen? Because yeah. it just depends on where you're coming from. If you believe that transgender is a, it's innate, it's immutable, and it's eternal, then it's just something that you are, yes. and nothing can be done about it. And if your parents aren't accepting that, then they're bad parents. You know, basically everybody is conflating trans and gay in my mind. Right. You know, I want to say trans is not the new gay, but almost every, like, so we have all these people in their forties and fifties who perhaps feel bad 
about the way they were, they were around the topic of homosexuality 30 mm-hmm. years ago. And so now it's almost like they're overcompensating. They're like, okay, I'm going to be on the right side of history with this one. I'm going to do all the right things. I'm going to support these poor trans kids because, because they deserve to be happy, you know? And so if, if that's your outlook, then the parent who is not affirming is an abusive parent. And so that is the outlook of a lot of school teachers and a lot of social workers and a lot of people who are in the whole child protection system. Mm-hmm. And so that's I analogous have. to then beating them. Because if you beat your child, you can lose your child. Right. But it's very difficult. because It is difficult. Though. Right. Yeah. Right? That's not something that's easy to do. And just also want to clarify for the listeners, you mm-hmm. are not against trans people. You believe that there are trans people. Right. Yeah. You're, you're questioning I, 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 the actual, yes. the, the, the increase, the, the phenomenal increase is, is what you're actually pushing back on. Not that they're, cause I just want to make sure that that's right. You know, Not that listen, any like, this woman doesn't agree that, you know, it's cause in our previous conversations, it's much like many clinicians that I've talked to. It's not that they're arguing yourself included that there's no such thing as trans. Mm-hmm. It's that there needs to be a much bigger rigor to the understanding of why this is happening. And then whether or not you accept the rapid onset gender dysphoria as a Mm -hmm. hypothesis isn't as important as the numbers themselves, right? How is this? And some of the literature that I've read specific to females, and you mentioned the difference between females and males, not only in suicide, but just suicidality and behavior. Mm -hmm. In the 19th century, we saw things like hysterical laughing and women in general, specifically young girls, are very empathetic to their friends and their crew. And so they kind of adopt these behaviors. And then that also transfers to things like anorexia nervosa and and bulimia and cutting. And all Mm -hmm. of these things are far more predominant to little girls than to boys. And so the idea there is that based on social contagion, because even Dr. Erica Anderson, who's very famous Mm -hmm. here in San Francisco uh, Mm -hmm. as a gender clinician and expert and vocal advocate, by the way, has then come out recently and said the same things you're saying as a yeah. pediatrician is like, Hey, yeah. I don't want to call it contagion because that's just, I don't know what that means yet. And it's not a medical mm-hmm. term, right. but this staggering increase is scaring me. And this is someone mm-hmm. who's, you know, immersed herself in this actual specific practice for decades. Yes. So that, yes. that I just want to make sure that the listeners understand that you're not like against trans or thinking it's, you know, you are there. It's just, you're pushing back as many clinicians are. I'm worried about, I'm worried about the massive increase in numbers and the complete lack of gatekeeping. Yes. Because the, oh my goodness. Yes. And I'm, and I'm just really worried for my professional organization for the American Academy of Pediatrics, because in 2017, the American Endocrine Society made a paper, which were guidelines. And so since they were guidelines, they, they had, uh, they had to talk about the quality of the evidence Mm -hmm. and they used little symbols and then, and then interpreted the symbols at the bottom to make it less obvious. But basically all of their references were of poor and very poor quality. (laughs) So, but anyway, they did these, uh, they did a guidelines in 2017, but their attitude was like, okay, we're endocrinologists. We do the hormones and we have no idea how to determine which kids are actually trans and which ones should be transitioned. But 
if you have a child that is trans, then this is how you do it. And uh, when you asked me about this, and so when, now we're back to it, um, you start puberty blockers mm-hmm. at the onset of puberty. And then when they're older, you give the cross-sex hormones, testosterone to females and estrogen to males. And then when they're older, still you do the surgeries. Um, But then in 2018, the American Academy of Pediatrics, they sort of leapt into that breach and they're like, oh, oh, we'll tell you. We'll tell you how you know. The way you know if a kid is trans is you ask them. Right. And if they say they're trans, then they're trans. And it's as simple as that. (laughs) And literally, like, to do anything other than to affirm is to be bad and wrong and short-sighted and bigoted and and all those other things. And that's in the name. (laughs) So gender-affirming care. And this is what I also read. And I talked to the psychoanalysts around this as they treat. Many of them need to start at the conclusion. Mm-hmm. So when the patient comes in, it's a 12-year-old little girl who says, I am trans. That's it. That's where yeah. you start, right? Yeah. It's like, okay, yeah. so let's talk about what that Going means. Going on from there, yeah. Yes, versus, and, and I've gone through lots and lots of therapy for reasons I don't need to disclose here, but <laughs> it's it's not asking, okay, you know, did you feel this at three? Have you had any of these before? Mm-hmm. How have you grown up? Right. Is there abuse in your house? Do you have Asperger's or autism Mm -hmm. and any questions specific to like any comorbidity or covariate specific to mental health that is not allowed? Is that correct? Because I've heard this from numerous clinicians, but that seems really. Yeah, it's 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 got a real chilling effect. So multiple entities in California, in Canada and different places have passed what they call conversion therapy bans, right? And so you're hearkening back to the bad old days when terrible things were done to male homosexuals. I mean, like literally electric shock and aversion therapy and all that kind of stuff was attempted. They, okay, let's not go into it. Anyway, so yeah, terrible things were done in the past to try to make men not be gay. And so when you say conversion therapy, you think of all that. And then they say, so conversion therapy is illegal. But as I said earlier, nobody's really doing conversion therapy on kids. And so the therapists who want to take a kid who comes in and says, I'm trans and like, all right, let's talk about that. You know, when did this start and what happened before and, you know, all these other things, they don't know, but they're scared that that's going to be called conversion therapy. I know a therapist in, in England as Hakeem, And he got reported to the, I don't know, to some authorities in England after he worked with a young woman who, uh, you know, who came to him for counseling. And she said, you know, I want to transition to male. And he didn't do anything out of the ordinary. And the complaint was dropped, but it was, you know, it's harassment, I would say. And I personally know a family whose 12 year old was given the trans diagnosis in the first five minutes of the first session with the therapist after answering three questions. So, yeah, 
that is what's yeah. going on. The only acceptable response to a child declaring this identity is to affirm it. Correct. And that's where you start. And I've, you know, qualitatively, I've interviewed about 40 trans folks to date and many of whom, you know, they're very happy in this state, mm -hmm. which is great, but they said the same thing that it wasn't, I, I asked them, you know, both in writing and in verbal interviews, you know, did you, what, what did this training look, what did this therapy look like? And they all said the same yeah. thing that it was started at the fact that they were trans that didn't go back. And then I did ask, did you ever deal with any actual other therapy? And many of them went through therapy previously for whatever mm -hmm. depression they were dealing with. <clears throat> but when they got to the gender affirming care piece, it was an acceptable practice in the field of medicine today to start at the conclusion. And that's where we kind of go into the puberty blockers. And also yeah. puberty blockers historically were used for something called precocious puberty, correct? Right. Isn't that right. One and of the indications. Well, yes, yes. So puberty blockers are technically gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists and they act in the brainstem to completely shut down all of the gonadotropins that's testosterone and estrogen and progestin. And, and we all have all of them actually. Mm -hmm. So the drug was discovered and developed for, for prostate cancer. Right. And then it has been used for other hormone sensitive cancers. It's been used for chemical castration of sex offenders, yep, but it has that. been deemed cruel and unusual punishment for the use in sex offenders by some, by some entities. And, and then it was used for precocious puberty. But right. the last time I checked in my big online textbook, because um, medical textbooks these days do tend to be online. There's a big one called up to date. And I used to pay hundreds of dollars for access, but now I get it from my work. And the last I checked, they only recommend using Lupron or Suprolin or a similar um, puberty blocker. If you have a girl who is quite obviously going into full puberty at age five or six. That's they called don't precocious puberty, right? And that's, that's precocious puberty. Like you yeah. have a kid who's in kindergarten and they have pubic hair and underarm hair and breasts are developing and you're like, oh, wow, they're going to start their right. periods. Right. So that is precocious puberty. And the big danger there is that if you go through puberty in the body of a first grader, you're going to stop growing, right? I mean, part right. of puberty, the first part of puberty is the bones are growing a lot and getting denser, but then the end of puberty is the bones stop growing. Right. And uh, that's what you're trying to, that's what you're trying to avoid with the puberty blockers. Which makes and in the past, um, say 30 years ago, they did give puberty blockers to older girls. Like they might even give it to a nine-year-old or, you know, Right, to an eight that, or that nine or ten year old. Very early, right? But today yeah. it's not. Yeah, today it's not. Although, I mean, I'm pretty old, and I I started my periods when I was ten. So, yeah. So yeah. the normal range today is considered to be nine to seventeen. It's a huge range for uh, first period. Um, but yeah, it's not a thing that has been used very often. I mean, I've been a pediatrician for just about 30 years, and I've never had a kid on puberty blockers for precocious puberty. Okay. 
but so it's I rare to begin now with. Have, yeah, it's rare to begin, but I do now have a patient on puberty blockers for gender issues. Okay. So let me ask you this, Doc. There's lots of literature out there. And again, this topic is so controversial. And for me as a layperson trying to report on it, it's difficult to actually yeah. find information that I isn't poo-pooed, right, by one or another. And so right. the issue there is that, and this is a lot of the clinicians that are very vocal about gender affirming care, is that puberty blockers by themselves mm-hmm. are irreversible. And what they do Wait. is they stop, pause, pause, uh-huh. pause. And so right. even for me as a layperson, I, that seems unbelievably, it's like they're leveling the complexity of that. So like, what, what does it mean to you as a clinician to say, right. oh, it, there's no deleterious long-term effects. We have no longitudinal studies, to my knowledge, on puberty blockers. Yeah. And so how can they say, they being doctors, say that we, it's reversible if they decide and the, and the whole idea of it, and I think that uh-huh. the origin of it comes from a good place. Sure. Children who are terribly scared about believing that they are other. Mm-hmm. And once they go through, if you're, if you're believed that you are a, let's just say female, trans, mm-hmm. and you go through male puberty, you're, you're forever altered. I mean, your yeah. voice, your shoulders are big, your hands are big, everything changes. So mm-hmm. I get that the, the idea behind it is like, Hey, we're just going to put a pause on this until you have time to think this through a little bit more. And let, let's say that's right. two years right. or three years. But in that period, they, it doesn't make sense to me, again, that you would mm-hmm. stop something, our physiology, mm-hmm. for three right. years and then remove the pill. And then it starts exactly where it's supposed to be, uninterrupted by anything. Yeah. What is What does that mean? for? What do you see as a clinician? Well, what is, what's going on? Yeah, there? it's really hard. I mean, this was the first thing that really set me off in my suspicion, right? Like I had my first trans patient. Um, let's see, she's 22, like six, seven years ago and came in and just had the classic story of very early onset age three, you know, ever since they could talk, they said, no, there's been a terrible mistake. I'm actually a boy, you know, all that. And I was like, oh, that's transgender. You know, we have a clinic at the children's hospital. So I will refer you to the clinic. And they went to the clinic and they came back and they're like, oh my God, the testosterone's a shot. I hate needles. And it's like, that's fine. Just bring the medicine here and I'll have one of the MAs give you the shot. And then we taught the patient's grandmother to give the shots and, you know, and they went on their, on their way. Um, so when it started and it was like a really rare thing, I was like, okay, that's a thing. But then more and more. And then I talked to people and everybody from the, the, the trans kids group activist to the pediatric endocrinologist, they all told me that 99 plus percent of kids who are put on puberty blockers go on to doing the cross-sex hormones and the surgeries and all the rest of it. And they'd stand there and they'd say that like, see, wow, because like the kids, they know. And I'm like, no, I'm a pediatrician. 99% of 12 year olds don't know what they're going to do for Halloween. You know, like they no, 99% of 12 year olds are not correct on any decision. You know, adolescence is a time of identity formation. You're trying to find your tribe, you know, you're trying to figure out who you are. You could try on this identity and then that identity, and it's not necessarily what you're going to do for the rest of your life. 
So when they told me that, then I was like, well, what that tells me is that these puberty blockers are not a harmless pause. It's not just putting everything on hold so you can have your thoughts and decide what the best path is. If every single child is deciding that the best path is to continue with transition, then I really don't think that the puberty blockers are the harmless pause that they, you know, that they said it was. And over in Sweden, which is a little bit ahead of us in terms of transitioning kids, there was a, um, sort of like a investig investigation news program that uh, did a four-part series called The Trans Train. And they found mm -hmm. a young person who had been put on puberty blockers and then developed terrible spinal pain and was depressed and so wasn't really explaining what the problem was, which is really sad. So now has irreversible spinal damage, just cannot sit or stand for long periods of time because this individual person under the influence of puberty blockers developed osteoporosis basically. So well, puberty is a time when your skeleton gets much, much more dense. As a pediatrician, okay. I get a lot more x-rays on kids to look for fractures than I would if I was an adult doctor because kids' bones are much softer. Hmm. Um, and then during puberty, your bones become very dense. They become extra dense and then they kind of thin as you get older. And then when you're really old, your bones are thin and brittle. But when you have kids on puberty blockers, they come out of it as a group. They're still like the average is still within the normal range, but they're all down at the bottom of the normal range. And some of them are well below the normal range. Okay, so and that's so, good to clarify because anecdotal stuff is, you know, you hear anecdotal things, but the idea is that it causes a decrease in bone density. And, yeah. and the one thing that my, my progressive friends share with me literature wise uh -huh. is that that's also reversible with medication is that you can, and is that the case as well? That you right. can then I get mean, back it, the bone density based on some other medication? Hope. I mean, like you said, we don't seem to have the, you know, we don't seem to have the long-term data. Right. It's it's amazing to me that this late in the game, we don't have the long term data. And the longer I get into this, the more suspicious I get that the people who have the long term data aren't publishing it for reasons. But anyway, we don't have any published long term data on this. We just have a lot of case reports and we just have what we know about what happens in adolescence which is a, a massive increase in bone density. So it's not really that the puberty blockers decrease bone density. It's that they stop the expected increase. Got it. Okay, that's good to know. And I think that there's two things there that stand out, one of which is there's an actual decrease in bone density. And whether or not it's small and it takes someone uh -huh. from the middle of the threshold down to the bottom of the threshold, maybe that's not as alarming. But the 99%... Uh -huh. <laughs> There's, yeah, that 99 you can't get 99% of people to agree on a kitten video being cute. Exactly. Right. So yeah. how is it that that's a number that for me, I came from advertising and in the media world, we, we spend tons and tons of our time on market research. Anything mm -hmm. that's over 60% is a staggering number. So you're looking at right. that 99% means that they are on this path. And, and, uh, Helen Joyce, I interviewed who wrote a book called Trans when ideology mm -hmm. means reality. Very good book. And she's done, a, it was, and she's done tons of homework on this. 
specifically because of her interviews with detransitioners. And that was, that was kind of where she came back with this. And then she was also told as a story journalist not to report on it, which is probably the biggest mistake anyone made telling her not to do that. But the idea yeah. there was, she said this was a cascade of intervention, which is a medical term, which I'm sure you're aware of, is that mm-hmm. once you start on something, it just continues, which then yes. progresses into the next question I have for you, which yes. is lifetime medicalization of children. <laughs> so that's a scary notion. There's, and I don't want to even get it into is. like the conspiracy theories of like pharma companies, you know, making billions of dollars. And so this is a thing, but yeah. the idea there is that medicalization is tough to begin with for anyone, yes. on any med that you have to take ad infinitum. That's a scary thing. So mm-hmm. if you have children with this, specifically the increase that we're seeing today in adolescence, identifying as other trans, non-binary, whatever it may be, they're mm-hmm. then on puberty blockers. They will for sure graduate to testosterone or estrogen. Can you tell me a little bit about the effects of, let's just say test, let's specific to this young lady who, the mother who lost sure. her child. What happens with a female biology that absorbs mm-hmm. large amounts of testosterone during treatment? What, what goes on there? Right. Taking so place in uh, the body. A lot of different things can happen, and um, there does seem to be a lot of variation, which makes everything you know more complicated. But the vocal cords are going to thicken, right? And then what's interesting to me is some females who take testosterone, they grow a large Adam apple, you know, Adam's apple, an Adam's apple. And, yeah, they get an Adam's apple. And they have a, you know, a bass or baritone voice, Mm -hmm. you know, they just, they go right in there and they pass completely for male on the phone, you know, and then there are other females who it's like, it's like the larynx is unable to grow, but the vocal cords thicken inside that larynx and they end up with this really tight sounding voice Mm. and and like listening to them talk, you're sort of like, take a drink of water, take a drink of water. Right. Like they, they really sound like they need to keep drinking water in order to keep talking. Yeah, there my voice gives out as I do that. <laughs> and um and who and you know, you'd think, okay, is it the people who take testosterone younger who get the big, you know, mm-hmm. vocal but no, no. I know people who didn't take testosterone until they were over twenty. And they get the big still deep happens. voice. Yeah, it still happens. And then, so I think it must be just genetic variation. I mean, just like hair, hair loss is interesting, right? So testosterone drives male pattern baldness. Yep. And the interesting thing about male pattern baldness is that the genes for it are on the X chromosome. So as a guy, if you're trying to figure out if you're going to lose your hair, you should look at your mother's father. You should look at the men in your mom's family because that's where you got your X chromosome. You got a Y from your dad. That's why you're a guy. So whether or not your dad lost his hair has no, no bearing on whether you're going to lose your hair at all. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Your dad's hair loss or lack of hair loss does not impact your pattern. But if you're female and you're taking testosterone, you've got two X chromosomes. (laughs) And so you've, You've basically doubled your chances of hair loss. Of losing hair. And just to of be specific, losing hair. these are both irreversible. So once these you are get both the voice, irreversible. Right? Yeah. Once you hair develop loss that is voice. And once you crack voice happens. 
the deep voice is irreversible. Yep. Clitoral enlargement is another thing that happens to everybody. It happens to varying degrees. Um, I have met multiple people for whom that caused pain, okay. for whom that caused like chronic pain because like, Kind of like where the vocal cords are thickening and a larynx that's not enlarging. And so now it's all crowded in there. The same thing can happen with the clitoris. So um, the clitoral enlargement is not reversible and can, can be, can be fine or can be a problem. Um, hair loss is irreversible. And then on the it's hair development, right? So beard, mustache, right. hair on your chest, hair on your abdomen, hair all over you. Arms? <laughs> yeah. Like, like, all of could it. it just yeah, get I mean, everywhere? Okay. And that's genetic too, right? Like, is right. your is your family a hairy family? Like, you know, that's hugely variable. So the the amount of beard you're going to get, and yet there are some females who take testosterone for four or five years, and they never seem to get that much of a beard. It's always kind of lame and scraggly. So okay. who knows? But what you get, once you stop testosterone, because I know multiple detransitioners, the hair um, becomes softer and finer. But it's still there. But the follicles still, are still there. Yeah. yeah, the follicles are still there. You still need to shave or you need to do electrolysis okay. or waxing or something okay. if you don't want to look like a bearded lady. Um, so, yeah, so there's the beard and then the acne, right? So testosterone leads to acne. And a lot of that male, is, male stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all male stuff. Yeah. It's all male. It's really fascinating to me. Um most of the things that testosterone does to the male skeleton prepare it for fistfights. Basically, okay. prepare the dude for hand-to-hand combat. Because right, the, the 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 brain gets armored. the The jaw is jaw. thicker in a male. Yeah. The brow is thicker in a male. Like you're getting ready to get punched in the face. Okay, <laughs> and. The shoulders broaden yep. and the upper body gets a lot stronger. I mean, the Do your hands physiologists. Grow? Oh, yeah. Hands grow. Like your hands grow. Have... So on testosterone, their hands get bigger. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Okay. Sorry. No, it's, I'm just asking. That's, I didn't part know of, that's part of normal male adolescence. Right. I have not seen that. I have not, I have not examined enough kids who were puberty blocked and then put on testosterone, you know, like, but the Dutch have published, um, some studies and they, they, they published a study that said trans girls grow tall. So puberty blocking boys who want to be girls and before puberty commences and then putting them on estrogen and having them try to go through a female puberty. Um, it does not, stop them from becoming tall. Okay. There's they're still tall. And then the girls who want to be boys, they fall off their growth curve when you put them on the puberty blockers and then when you put them on testosterone, they usually regain to where they were before. So they don't get extra tall. The testosterone does not make the females extra tall. Okay. So, you know, these hormones can only do so much, but they do a lot. They are very they powerful. And and the testosterone has, I mean, you're a guy, so you remember testosterone has powerful psychological effects. Yep. And I I will often say to my to my uh male patients that I view 
puberty for guys is like this years long process of coming to terms with all the stupid things that testosterone is telling you to do. (laughs) So you just kind of walk through life and you're like, no, 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 not, not going to do that. No, (laughs) not that either. Yes. No, in jail if I do that, like that, no, I can't do. So like, it's like, do this, you know, it, it makes you, it, it, it makes you want to punch people you should not be punching. And it makes you want to grope people that you should not be groping. And when girls are suddenly like flooded with testosterone, it's, it's that, but it's, it's, it's just really harsh on them. You know? I've also read that what, it causes euphoria. And so yes. that's another thing too. The with, first few doses do. Yeah. So like that's pieces and that's specific to Lisa Littman's research in that a lot of, and then there's other, Abigail Sharon did this too, specific mm-hmm. to Tumblr and Reddit and some of the communities that I've launched. And these are thousands of people who are very, very supportive of young mm-hmm. adolescents deciding to transition mm-hmm. until they don't, obviously. If they go back, then it's, they're brutal and terrible. But right. in that sense, as they're these, you know, cause teenagers as a group, and this one thing I know even just going through it myself is that it's teenagers being a teenager is tough and you feel lost and you feel like everyone else is better and there, no one else is dealing with the same level of anxiety or, or body dysphoria because I'm not as buff as I should be, or my penis isn't as big or my boobs aren't as big or whatever that may be. And then these, these Tumblr communities actually embrace you and tell you that we love you and we're here for you. And by the way, as soon as you do take drugs, if you are on testosterone, it will help you. Mm-hmm. And you will feel better. And yeah. that, to your point. And then that's how you know that you're really That's trans how you know because, that you're trans. Yeah, yeah. If the testosterone makes you happy, then ta-da, that means you're trans. When actually testosterone is a mood-altering substance. It doesn't seem to persist. Like okay, the so first, it's just in the beginning stages. Yeah, the first few doses of testosterone, you get this like burst of energy. Yeah. And this drive to move. And yeah, I mean, okay. you're, get, you're making more red cells your, your, yeah, your blood pressure is going up, all kinds of things are happening and it manifests as euphoria, but it often devolves into agitation. Okay. Um, at least in some female to male transitioners. I mean, obviously there are, there are female to male transitioners where this all went really well and they're happy and their lives are going on fine. But, and I spend more of my time talking to the people for whom it didn't go well. Helena is a detransitioner who has an amazing story in that she drove to a planned parenthood in another state, um, on her, like right after her 18th birthday. And she gave them a very convincing story about how, you know, she was trans and her parents were transphobic. And so now that she's mm-hmm. 18, she's here to get going on her new life. And they were like, wow, you know, we usually don't give hormones on the first visit. We do some labs and stuff. But since you drove so far, we're going to, we're going to prescribe you the testosterone today. And, and then she's like, okay, so how much are you going to give me? And they're like, well, we usually do. 25 milligrams. And she says to them, well, you know, I have really wide hips. And so I think that means I make a lot of estrogen. And so I think I'm going to need a higher dose. And the nurse practitioner, because these are not doctors, the nurse practitioner is like, well, how much do you think you should get? And she's like, well, how much could I get? And they're like, well, 
the max dose is usually a hundred. She's like, yeah. So they wrote her for a hundred. They wrote her for a hundred. First meeting. This is a girl who makes an argument based on her hip size. And so she immediately is injecting a hundred milligrams a week, a dose that some trans men never get to. And ironically, um, testosterone gets aromatized, aromatized to, um, estrogen. And so she doesn't have as many, um, masculine features as you might expect for someone who took testosterone as long as she did, because she was hitting her body with such a massive dose of testosterone that a lot of it got transitioned, like just got turned into estrogen. But she did wow. get voice changes and beard and various things. But get the her main hips thing she got smaller. Your hips did not get smaller. Testosterone does not make your hips smaller. Um, (laughs) Yeah. um, But she she had psych. She had psych problems. And she was hospitalized for self-harm. And she asked them, is it the testosterone that's making me so unstable? And they're all like, no, no, no. You know, and so she did the hospitalization. She continued the testosterone. She left. And then when she was hospitalized a second time, for just like agitation and self-harm she's like yeah it's the testosterone that's what's doing this and she stopped it just on her own she's just decided to ignore all the doctors and stop it and she is incredibly um articulate at describing her story and her situation because she's not a gay a gay girl she was just a girl who felt out of place who didn't have a good friend group and then who discovered people online like you said who who were all you know trading oppression points and as a as a white cis het girl she was like way too privileged right and when she announced that she was changing her pronouns to they them she got the she got love bombed and it was awesome but then after a while it's kind of like, I don't know, wearing off or something. So then she changed her pronouns to he, him. She literally got just led down this path online via, you know, social, yeah, social interactions. Um, I had another point and I lost it. It's okay. I mean, that, what about then the same thing stands true for boys? What takes place with boys yeah. when they start to ingest estrogen? What, right. what takes so, place in their body? So when boys and well, I think it's important to talk about what puberty blockers do to boys. That's a good because, start. Yes. Yeah, because that's the really that's the really scary. Well, it's all scary. There's a lot of scary stuff. But if you put a if you put a young girl on puberty blockers at the onset of of puberty, like the first pubic hair, mm-hmm. um, her ovaries aren't going to develop she's probably she will be sterilized if she goes on to testosterone and she will be her, is that 100% yes that's 100% okay. if the if the ovaries never develop then they can't they can't now yeah now if she's on puberty blockers for 2 years and testosterone for 2 more years and then she detransitions that's a big we don't know that but is a big old we don't get know. Her, her ovaries could, but we don't know. We okay, really don't know. Okay. Um, but with boys, I mean, the the whole idea of puberty blockers was to help sort of future trans women, right? Because we've talked about how powerful testosterone is, changes mm-hmm. your jaw, 
changes your brow, changes your voice, gives you a beard, all that's kind of increases muscle mass, all that stuff. So, um, it's really hard for trans women to pass as women. You know, people see them and, you know, humans are very good females in particular. Women are really good at sexing other people. It's a a survival. Yeah. It's evolutionary. It's a, it's a survival strategy. You need to know the sex of that person down the path. Yeah. So that you can decide how you're going to react to them approaching right. you. And, you know, you need to judge whether they're a threat or not. And the right. sex helps you determine if they're a threat. So what they've been doing for quite a while now is putting uh, trans-identified boys, trans girls, onto puberty blockers at the first sign of puberty, which isn't actually a pubic hair. It's testicular enlargement is the first thing that happens. And that blocks puberty. And that means that the testicles stop enlarging and stop developing and that the penis never enlarges. And so you'll have a 17 year old with the penis of a 10 year old. And then the traditional surgery for, you know, bottom surgery for a trans woman is called penile inversion. And they, they, they try to remove the glands, which is the head of the penis and has a lot of the nerve endings. They, they try to remove that and maintain the nerves and kind of stick it where a clitoris would be. Right. So it's kind of on the surface. And then they use the rest of the penis. They remove everything that's inside and they turn it inside out and they're creating a vaginal simulacrum okay. right. <laughs> from that. And it's it's not a vagina it doesn't stretch like a vagina it doesn't make um its own lubrication and you know self-cleaning fluid like a vagina um it's a surgical opening and it wants to close so anybody that has vaginoplasty has to dilate which means insert objects of increasing diameter into that opening to keep it from closing because the body wants to close any kind of an opening like that forever, forever. Yeah. I, I would oh imagine God. that if you do a lot of dilation over years, it's gonna be like, stop trying so hard. But in the first, in the, I, yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. You've talked to some more trans women about that, but my understanding is you have to keep doing it. Okay. And so there's actually been an argument that it's better to do the the vaginoplasty on the boys when they're still in high school and living with their mom so their mom can make sure they do the dilations. And there's, you know, scenes in I Am Jazz where the mom is like, now go there and do your dilations, you know. Wow, so, that's a real suggestion. To do yeah. it young so that your mother can help you with your dilation. Yeah remind you to do it because you know boys or girls anyway um but the problem is that if you have the penis of a 10 year old boy that's not not enough yeah there's not much there and so now they're taking other bits of you to try to put it in there and they have used pieces of colon and the problem is that you end up with a vagina that smells like poop like There's a no colon. Way to put it. Yeah, yeah. It smells yeah. like a colon. And they've tried peritoneal lining, but that doesn't seem to be very strong. I think they tried that with jazz. And okay. jazz has had multiple surgical revisions. It just has not gone well. 
And yeah. <laughs> it's, wow. It's, so, um, so yeah, so it's like, and then you've got this, um, video of Marcy Bowers. Marcy Bowers is a trans woman, uh, a person who transitioned from male to female after age 35. I'm not sure, you know, as yeah. an adult. Yep. Had three kids, I think, had multiple kids, was married, had multiple kids, and then transitioned as, as a, as a middle-aged person and is now a plastic surgeon who's done more vaginoplasties probably than anybody. This is her thing. And video I've seen of a Duke University conference where, you know, it's a Zoom meeting and so you see all the mm-hmm. squares. And there's Marcy in one of the squares and all the other people nodding, saying that all the patients I've had who were blocked at Tanner 2 before they'd ever had an orgasm, they never have an orgasm. Correct. And so she's saying to these other gender doctors, you know, maybe we should wait a little longer before we start the puberty blockers, or maybe we should try to like encourage them to masturbate so that they know what an orgasm is before we do the surgery. Because if we do the surgery and they've never had an orgasm, they basically never, never do have an orgasm. And they'll never know what that feels like. So I, I've never I've seen her and I've watched her talk. And that is a concern, obviously, the fact that and I think that's kind of lost in the literature is that you'll never have an orgasm. I think that that's something it's, that it's huge. people don't realize huge. how big of an issue that is. It is a really big issue. Yeah. It is part of life. And yeah. no a good child. Life. <laughs> yeah, it's a good so, part. Yeah. No child can consent to the loss of the thing that they're too young to understand. It's right. just like, I mean, it's like, it's like all of these kids say, well, I don't really want to have kids. My plan is to adopt. Right. This is what they all say. But, you know, if you survey 13-year-olds, almost all of them will say that. They'll say, oh, sure. there's too many people in the world. Right. You know, I don't want to have any kids. But then if you survey them 10 years later or 20 years later, they have a different feeling about it. Mm-hmm. And that's just normal. That's just like yeah. normal human development. Um, gynecologists would routinely refuse to do a hysterectomy or a tubal ligation to do a sterilizing procedure on a young woman who wanted it. Even if the woman was like very, very clear that they wanted this done. And what I was told by gynecologists is because, um, 30, I think it was, it's that old 70, 30 thing again, 30%. Of people who get surgically sterilized come to regret it later. And the problem is there's no way to know which people are going to be in that 30%. Like you can't go from the, from the, you know, from their enthusiasm or from how strongly they feel about it. That doesn't correlate to whether or not they're going to regret it later. Um, that's more about your personality. So they, they wouldn't do it. And yet now, if a woman wants to become sterilized, there's a very quick and easy path, which is to declare a trans identity. You can even these wow. days like declare a non-binary tra- tra- you know identity, mm. and they're doing medical treatment for that. Okay, 
Let me go back to this. Tanner 2. Do you want to explain what Tanner 2 means? Sure. So um, Mr. Tanner or Dr. Tanner was a guy who studied the development of puberty. And um, he came up with these stages. So Tanner 1 is pre-puberty. If you imagine a five or six-year-old child, right? Just there's nothing going on there. And then Tanner 2 is the very first signs of puberty. So for a girl, it's typically breast buds, like a little bit of glandular development behind the nipples. The nipples are now a little tender. It's very upsetting if it, if it happens on one side and not the other side. So I'll get people coming in for that. And I'm like, this is okay. The other one's going to catch fine. up. <laughs> it's going to be fine. Um, or, you know, and then maybe, you know, like if I, if I am doing a physical and there's like two or three pubic hairs, they're pretty fine, but they are darker. I'll say that's Tanner two. Okay. So that's Tanner two is the start. And then three is a little bit further. A girl will start a period sometimes at the end of Tanner three, four is looking pretty adult. And then five is like very adult. I don't know. Adult it's it's interesting because a fair number of people don't ever get to Tanner five. Tanner five is when you're like real hairy. <laughs> Got it. So, and so with boys, but, uh, it's the same thing. It's the, the test, the, testicles start to grow in Tanner too, but they have yet, the penis has yet to stop, start growing. So there's my question, because I've read about micropenis Mm -hmm. specific to these treatments. And I can say as a man who is enjoying Uh a healthy sex life, um, a micropenis isn't good. I can't imagine. Yeah, yeah, it sounds really bad. Because I remember being really, really happy (laughs) as a teenager when I I started to grow. Yeah, I was like, oh my God, look at it's finally there. Um, And so yes. Tanner two, you go from your testos your test testicles grow. Right. They're first. If they put them on the puberty blockers, uh-huh. And then like you said before, let's say they're three years in. When they come off, so did did they actually stop the puberty then? Are these these right? boys doomed to have a small penis for the rest of their life? Or does it come back? Or does it just continue like, oh, we paused it, but now it's fine? I don't know, because I mean like you know, you can take like a, you can take an extreme example. Like if somebody was crazy enough to put somebody on puberty blockers at age 11 mm-hmm. and then keep them on the puberty blockers until age 18, you know, and then you take them off, are they going to resume and like go through year, you know, like what you'd be do at age 12, 13, 14, 15, right. at age 19, 20, 21, 22? I don't think so. I really don't think so. And then it just becomes like this, this this spectrum of okay well what if it's three months of puberty blockage yes definitely if it's three months of puberty blockage i feel like the kid can just pick up and recover but when you get into like the suprolim implant is put in and it's a two-year implant and so what happens after two years of puberty block what is a supplement implant? I've never heard of that oh it's a it's a it's a it's another brand name for a lupron like medicine so everybody's actually put one thing in it, yeah, it, go, it goes in your arm. So it's, it's actually put into your body. Yeah, it's like a holy yeah, cow. I yeah, like I, there's a birth control thing called the Nexplanon, which is a okay. little plastic rod, and it goes in your arm and it releases progestins. Okay. Um, the Suprolin is an implant that goes in the arm, and uh, it releases the GnRH agonists. And so, so that's happening now with them. kids. That is happening now with kids. Uh, for the and it's a very of... expensive thing. Okay. It's tens of thousands of dollars. Got it. Okay. 
And so if you did that for three years, again, we have no longitudinal studies on any of this. So yeah. I think well, maybe we can kind of close out our talk. And again, I appreciate your time. Um, yeah. Informed consent is a big yes. thing for you. You want to explain what yes. that means specific to this huge discussion we just had? Because that seems right. really important. Yeah, I think informed consent is a huge deal because these really are still experimental, experimental medical treatments. By definition. By definition. Right? And so yeah. I feel like these are things that adults can consent to. And if an adult is living their life and they've decided that this is the only way they're going to be happy, mm-hmm. then, you know, they are perfectly capable of, of signing up for this. I do think that there are a lot of young adults who are not getting a full readout of the risks they're walking into. You know, I really think that there's a fair number of young people who are being sold a bill of goods about how awesome this is going to be. And when you say young people, everything. are you talking about like 18 to 22 or what is, what does that mean? Yeah. 18 to 25. Um, okay. I, you know, I want to go back to as Hakim, the guy that was harassed yes. by trans activists in London 20 plus years ago, he was put in charge as a fairly young psychiatrist. He was put in charge of what were then called transsexuals right. at the psych Institute where he was. And he had the brilliant idea of doing group therapy that combined the transsexuals who were waiting for their surgery with transsexuals mm-hmm. who had had their surgery, but still had issues and wanted group therapy. You know, so obviously this is a selected group of people, right? Like the transsexuals who had their surgery and it made everything better and they were happy. They're not going to take the bus to this place and go to group therapy. But exposure to people who had the surgery and still had issues had a profound effect on the trans identifying. These are adults, the trans identifying adults who were looking forward to their surgery. Yep. And he said that like 90% of them decided not to get the surgery because it's just sort of human nature. This is a hero's quest, right? You do this and these changes happen, but you're still not happy. So then I'm going to do this thing and that's going to do it. And then I'm going to do that thing and that's going to do it. And to be weekly in a group where that wasn't really what they were talking about. They were just doing group therapy and talking about their lives and supporting each other, but to observe that there's there's Jane over there and she's done all the things like she's yeah. had the top surgery and the bottom surgery and yeah. the facial feminization. She's had them all and she's still not happy. Hmm. Uh, Maybe I need to think, yeah. let me think this through. But that, yeah, that's a perfect point because these are adults. And I think that that's where the informed consent piece is, is that your thesis and, and a lot of the literature I've read from you is that under 18, you uh-huh. know, I, I got accused of being flippant with this, but I said specific to puberty blockers once. I said, I don't, my 10 year old is still in a booster seat. Mm-hmm. So I didn't mean to be flippant, but the idea there was like, I can't imagine my 10 year old or 11 year old making that decision because yeah. this is specific to the, you know, the aforementioned 99% graduate mm-hmm. to cross sex hormones. So the informed consent discussion is, is basically surrounds children's capacity, correct? Yeah. To understand right. the magnitude yeah. of these decisions. Of what they're signing up for. And yeah. I really don't think that they can. I mean, actually, I'll take it back further. I feel like, so the National Health Service of England has just put out some uh, preliminary guidance for how they want to manage this going forward. 
Mm-hmm. And they said that pre-pubertal children should not be socially transitioned. You should not change their name. You should not change their pronouns. And that if you socially, you should only socially transition adolescents if it is just really necessary to keep them from, you know, being, being suicidal. too, too yeah. suicidal. Yeah. And even then, they need to undergo informed consent. So basically, what you need to that? bring the informed consent. So when you do the social transition, it's obviously, it's not a medical intervention. No. But it's a powerful intervention, particularly yeah. with a child. And something I have said repeatedly is that a young child, younger than your 10-year-old, 10-year-olds are beginning to have some logic. You know, you can mm-hmm. talk to them about cause and effect. Sure. But if you have a kid who's who's less than seven, you know, they are what I call pre-logical. They do not do things because they reasoned it out. They, they, Mm -hmm. they just don't, Uh, you can have conversations with them, but you're not really changing their behavior by giving them the facts. They do things because you said so, which is weird to think about, but it's true. (laughs) So if you have a young child, uh, someone who's less than seven and you tell them, Oh, Johnny, you know, since you love skirts and sparkles and you want to paint your nails and you want to grow your hair out, that means that actually there's something wrong with your body. Um, you have a girl's brain in a boy's body. And so we're going to just, we're going to give you a new name. We're going to, we're going to call you Jane and we're going to let you grow your hair out and we're going to let you paint your nails. We're going to let you Mm -hmm. wear the clothes you want to wear. And it's going to be awesome. And then when you get older, the doctors will change your sex. And a child of three, four, five, six, seven will believe that they will believe that when they're older, the doctors will change their sex. And we can't, we really can't. And I think it's cruel to say that to a child. I think it's cruel to imply that we can because kids who are young enough to believe in Santa Claus need the adults in their lives to take care of them. Yeah. And I'm a pediatrician and it's my job to take care of kids. And I think they are not being well-served. I think that in the name of acceptance and liberalism and open-mindedness and all that is good, we are doing a vast disservice to these kids. Um, it's They don't know what they're getting into. They can't know what they're getting into. It's our job to look at all the options. I mean... I had a family once with an obese child, an obese eight-year-old, and they said, he only eats McDonald's. And I'm like, he's eight years old. Right. He doesn't have a job. He has no money. If he goes to McDonald's, they're not going to give him any food. Right. Like the only way he gets McDonald's is if a grown-up in his life goes to McDonald's, buys it and gives it to him. Right. You know, like it's our job to take care of the kids. And part of that is telling them no about things that they want. Um, And is that the crux of informed consent for you, Doc? Is that it's, I mean, what is it actually, do you believe that at 15 people can understand that long-term medicalization is a, is a viable 
alternative yeah. to the misery. I mean, what, where do you, cause the, the, the right. liberal in me is uh-huh. that if someone is, and this is the biggest argument from the progressive activism yeah. is that these children will kill themselves, which by the way, I've, right. I've never found any data on that at all. There's no data on um, that. Not there's causal. Nothing, no, there's nothing None. backing that up. None. No, but that the is the big argument. Is higher. Yeah. I mean, uh, Michael Biggs is a British researcher and he got a hold of a big, a lot of data from the Tavistock, which is the world's yes. largest gender clinic. It's being shut down, but it's been the world's largest gender clinic. And he basically compared people who were getting their affirmative care at the clinic versus people who were on the waiting list yep. for the gender clinic. And generally, the people on the waiting list were just getting nothing. I mean, that's one of the problems that the NHS is trying to address, right. that you can't just say, oh, it's gender, and then get on the waiting list. We'll deal with you in three years. Good luck. Right. You know, that's what they were doing. And the suicide rate was like, it was a weird two per 13,000. It was very small rate. It was four out of 15,000, right? I read that you. study. There you go. So, four out of 15,000. And, it and was that was a longitudinal same. study. Yeah. So, and that, yeah. it was the same in the kids who were getting the treatment versus the kids who were yes. on the waiting list. Yes. And in my, in my own life, the completed suicides in gender dysphoric children have all been in kids who were affirmed. I, it hasn't happened in any kids whose like parents are cruelly saying you need to wait till you're 18, right. you know, to do any of this. Right. So this is like the original sin mm-hmm. of trans activism, as far as I'm concerned, because they just keep repeating this. Yep. And it is a very not powerful true. narrative. Yeah. Okay. It so is and a that's... powerful narrative. Like if the alternative is death, then sure, infertility, whatever, lack of orgasm, better than death. But you can't compare this to death. So yeah, so that's part of the informed consent, if you ask me, is you need to know that you are not condemning a child to death if you have them wait. If you have them wait. Well, that's probably a good place to end. Again, I know how busy you are, and I really appreciate your time, Doc. It's been wonderful getting to know you. And you know, good luck on your journey, because I think that as I mentioned earlier, you're brave to do this. I do believe that there needs to be voices like you out there. Uh, and to be clear, I, in your homework, in your literature, you do, you work with trans people. You're not against trans people. You're right. just pushing back on the ideology specific to its atomacy and mm-hmm. the fact that there's absolutely, uh, the intolerance of the activism mm-hmm. itself that has permeated the academy, has permeated medicine, has permeated law. Yeah. These are some right. scary things. And I think that we need more voices like you out there. Uh, for myself as a trans activist and doing anything I can to legislate and lobby to help discrimination yeah. and harm for the community mm-hmm. at large, I, to just like you, ask questions because I'm just trying to figure all this out. And you right. helped me a lot specifically with what does it mean when we, you know, specifically the, the things of uh, moving from a puberty block or the 99% number. Again, that's a mm-hmm. staggering number on so many fronts. And the fact yeah. that we as adults and clinicians at your level, I think we do need to be more vocal. I think we do need to push back and ask for more uh, longitudinal studies and more consensus on the fact that we're not punishing these children by asking them questions about their mental health previous right. to the declaration yeah. of being trans. So, yeah. I, one thing I'd like to say is, you, you probably remember this, um, Bill Clinton, a long, long, long time ago, talking about abortion, 
he said he wanted it to be safe, legal, and rare. Rare. And I think that transition is a medical procedure with far more adverse long-term effects than abortion. And so I think it's reasonable to have a similar outlook Hmm. for this. This is a thing. It should be available, but it should be safe. And by that, I mean, people need to know about what it is and they need to go get some data and it should be legal. I do not think that legislation should be passed, you know, outlawing all trans care because that's That's just not how to fix things, but it should be rare. This has always been a really rare disorder. Correct. And there's, there's no biological reason for the numbers that we're seeing right now. And so I fear that many, many people are being misdiagnosed. I agree. I agree, even as a layperson. So again, thank you very much, Julia Mason. It's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.